Okay, let's start with a question, or maybe you might think of it as a thought experiment. And I got it from a guy named Tim Chester. He, he asked this question. What if communion disappeared? Like, what if we just stopped having communion? Would it really matter that much to your faith? Just go down this road with me for a second. Let's say that the crossing no longer celebrated communion. Now, we didn't precede that uh, with some sort of position paper put out by uh, the, the pastors, or there was no big formal announcement. We just didn't do it anymore. Now, in this thought experiment, everything else remains the same. In other words, we still get together on Sundays, we sing, we hear a sermon, uh, we, we pray together, we have small groups, and all the church activities. There's just no communion anymore. Would that make much of a difference in your faith? Would you really even notice it was gone? Like, how long would it take you to even realize it? And once you did realize it, would you care that much? Now, just to give some context, what if we had the same thought experiment, but we ran it with music? Like, no position paper, no announcement. We just stopped doing music at the crossing. Everything else the same. Sermon, prayer, small groups, all that's still the same. Would you notice? Would it matter to your faith? I'm thinking that the, the, the no singing would be more obvious than the no communion, right? Am I right about that? So, so Jesus establishes communion. Uh, on the night he's betrayed, the night before he's crucified, he, he shares this meal with his 12 disciples. And, and it's so important that every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record it. But it wasn't just kind of a one-time meal. It wasn't just something between Jesus and the 12. It was something that was supposed to continue on inside the church. We know that because the Apostle Paul, about 20 years later, picks up that topic in 1 Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. In other words, Jesus gave me instructions about this uh, communion thing. And now I'm passing it on to you and to all the churches. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul is saying that, that, that this thing that Jesus taught me, I'm now passing it along and teaching you because all churches everywhere should participate in communion. It doesn't matter what country, what language, what nationality. It doesn't matter what century. Every Christian community should practice communion. And the early church, they understood that because when they got together, that's what they did. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to prayer. So when the early church gathered, what did they do with their time? Well, they prayed, they, they read the scriptures, they, they spent time together connecting relationally, and they shared in communion. So you see this disconnect probably already, right? I mean, here's something that was really important to Jesus. It's really important in the early church. It's been passed down through the centuries. But for many of us, not all, but for many of us, if communion disappeared, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. 
So how did something that was so important to Jesus in the early church become optional for us? How in the world did communion become like leather seats in a sunroof, right? Nice to have, but not super essential. When I became a Christian in college, I, I was a part of this really good church, but their practice was to have communion once a quarter. So four times a year. No, if you're sick or gone or just missed church for some reason on one of those days, maybe take communion a couple times a year. And it made the service, whenever you had communion, it made the worship service that day much longer. So I'd walk in and I'd see communion set up and my heart would sink. I'd be like, oh no, uh, don't they know the football game is on at noon? Come on people, let's get with it. But that said something more about me than it did that church, right? But literally it would just be tacked on at the end. You'd have the whole service like normal, and then you'd have like this 30-minute communion service at the end of it. Now, when we started the crossing, we thought we want to do something that makes communion a, a little bit more meaningful. And one way that we wanted to do that was to weave it into the service. So it was really a part of that service, not something tacked on at the end. And we wanted it to be something everybody had to participate in. So people would come forward instead of just sitting and being passive in their seats and passing things down an aisle. And, and during the whole thing, everyone would be singing. And, and communion Sundays became really special. Like People looked forward to them. They were a meaningful part of their worship experience. And, and then there was this little thing, you might have heard of it. It's called COVID. And uh, all of a sudden, everything changed. And we can't take communion like we used to. But another reason that I don't think that when I became a Christian that communion was very meaningful to me is just to be frank, I, I didn't get the point. I was just told it was a symbol. And it is a symbol, but it's a lot more than that. And, and a symbol became a ritual. And here's the deal. I personally, just me, I hate doing things that I don't know why I'm doing them. Almost to the point that it's just like this fault of mine, that I refuse to do something if I only know the what, but I don't also know the why. And the reality is that I didn't understand the why behind communion. So it wasn't just a ritual. It became an empty ritual. So this morning in the time we have, I just want to take a shot at explaining the, the why of communion. And, and I want to do it by kind of mimicking what this one book did. It's called 100, The History of the World in 100 Objects. So it just takes objects and tells the, the story of, 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 of you know, humanity on earth. And, and it started with the first object was this mummy from thousands of years ago in Egypt. And the last object, which I guess is supposed to be us, is like solar panels, you know? And it just takes these objects and tells the story. Well, what if we did this for the Bible, except the object I want to use is just one, and it's meals. Can you tell the story of the Bible through meals? And the reason to do it through meals is because that's what communion is. Communion is a meal. So if we wanted to tell the story of the Bible from meals, we would start back at the very beginning. And we would say that God put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden and he gave them a menu of food to choose from almost as long as the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. It starts in uh, Genesis chapter two. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from 
any tree in the garden. So, so God's goodness is seen in this huge menu that Adam gets to choose from, this beautiful garden that produces all this food and, and you get to pick whatever you want from it. But, but more than that, not only could they eat from any tree in the garden, but they, they, God walked in that garden with them. So they were eating God's food in God's presence. God's food in God's presence. But the problem arose because because Adam and Eve, they wanted to order off the menu. The menu wasn't good enough for them. They wanted something that wasn't on the menu. And so we pick it up in, in uh, here with, but you must not eat. So God says you can eat from any, any fruit, except you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For whenever you eat from it, you will die. So we know that's what they did. They, they, they put their, their desire for food over their desire for God. They ate the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree and that ruptured their relationship with God. And it's interesting that the, the, the metaphor for sin here, the picture of sin is desiring food more than you desire God. But ever since Satan lied to Adam and Eve, ever since he tempted them and they took that forbidden food, their relationship with God has been ruptured, but also our relationship with food has been weird. From binging to purging, we're all trying to get control of our eating habits. But, but that sin, it drove them out of God's presence. So instead of eating a meal in the presence of God, now they've been banished from the garden. And when they go out to eat, they just ask for a table for one now. God is not with them. The next meal that we consider is the Passover meal. And perhaps you're familiar with the background of that meal, but, but, but let me set it up for you. Because of their sin, Israel finds themselves in slavery in, in Egypt, and it is a miserable form of oppression. And so they cry out to God, God, would you have mercy on us and deliver us? And God raises up a deliverer in Moses. And under God's orders, Moses goes to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he says, let my people go that they may worship me. Well, of course, fame, uh, uh, Pharaoh famously refuses to let them go. And so God sends plague after plague after plague. And largely those plagues fall on the Egyptians until you get to the 10th and final plague. And there, God says that he is going to take the life. He is going to kill the firstborn in every family of everyone who lives in Egypt. Now that included not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelites. The Israelites were subject to the same plague because they were just as sinful as the Egyptians were. But God provided a way out. The night before the angel of death was going to come through and take the life of the firstborn of every family, God instructs his people to make a sacrifice and so they sacrifice a lamb and they take the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. We pick up the story in Exodus 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
So God spared his people because of the blood of the lamb. But inside their homes, where the angel of death came through and passed over them because of the blood of the lamb, inside their homes, they shared a meal together. They shared a a, a meal that was celebrating and commemorating and honoring God for passing over them. And then God tells them to celebrate this Passover meal every year so that the celebration of God's deliverance from slavery was found by eating a meal together. Later in Exodus is another really important meal. This one happens on Mount Sinai. God comes to the mountain, and when God comes, he comes with thunder and lightning and clouds and smoke. All of it is surrounding the top of the mountain, and it is to signify that God is a holy God. And he calls Moses and the leaders of Israel to come up on the mountain and meet with him. But how will sinful people meet with a holy God? Well, they sacrifice animals. And they take the blood and they sprinkle it upon themselves and they go up the mountain to meet with God. Exodus 24. Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. <clears throat> Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, which is a precious gemstone, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. So here are the Israelites called up into the presence of God. And the reason that God does not judge them is because of the blood of the animals that they have sacrificed. So again, they are saved by the blood. But when they are in the presence of God, what do they do? Well, they eat and drink. They, they share a meal with God. So fast forward through the Bible, fast forward through a lot of meals that Jesus ate with people as he invited them to follow him. Fast forward to the very end of the Bible because at the end of God's story, what do you find? Well, you find the people of God eating a meal in God's presence. Revelation 19 calls it the wedding supper of the lamb. But the best picture of that comes back in the prophet Isaiah all the way back in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. This this is not an ordinary meal. This is a feast of rich food for all people, not just for the Israelites, but for anyone who wants to come to the Lord's table. It's a banquet of aged wine. It has the best of meats and the finest of wines. So imagine this, that when God wants to tell us what will it be like to be in his presence, what will it be like to enjoy all of God's blessings? Well, the metaphor he picks is a meal, the best meal that you've ever had. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He will swallow up death forever. This is a meal that goes on forever. It's a meal that never finishes the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. You hear that language of heaven, don't you? There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. Why? Because we're finally back to the Garden of Eden. We're enjoying God's meal in God's presence. And so when we share in communion together, We're coming into the presence of God by the blood of the lamb, by the sacrifice of Jesus.
And it's called communion because that's what we're doing. We're communing. We're, we're relating to God. And at communion is the chance to have a relationship with God, commune with God in the most profound and mystical way that you can. In other words, you can meet God in communion like you can nowhere else. If I said to you, hey, let's get lunch this week. Uh, let's go downtown. We'll, we'll meet at 9th and Elm and, and find a place to go eat. Go, well, is there anything special about Ninth and Elm? Well, not really, and yet, absolutely. And there's nothing special about it because we could have met at Eighth and Cherry or Broadway and Hit. We could have met somewhere else, but we didn't. We said we were going to meet at Ninth and Elm. So if you want to go to lunch together, show up there because that's where I'm going to, to be. Well, is there anything special about communion? Like the bread and the, and the wine, is there anything special about it? Well, no and yes. I mean, I guess God could have chosen to meet us in another place. God could have zapped us somehow so we got his spiritual strength in another way, but he didn't. What he did was say, show up here at this table because this is where I'm going to be. If you want to meet me and go to lunch, show up at Ninth and Elm. If you want to meet with a God who loves you, show up here at this table. But why a meal? I mean, of all the things that God could have told us that he'd meet us in, why a meal? Well, a meal nourishes your body, doesn't it? A meal nourishes your body, and this meal nourishes your faith. The Bible uses food as a, as a metaphor. Just like food nourishes your physical body, so food can also, spiritual food can nourish your spiritual soul. Jesus says in Matthew 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Just like you need food for physical nourishment, so you need spiritual food for spiritual nourishment. No one survives without food and no faith survives without God's food, without communing with God. The Bible, prayer, worship, and communion. So communion is a lot more than a symbol. It's doing a lot more work for you than, than just reminding you of something Jesus did. Communion is the primary way where it, God wants to feed your faith. God wants to strengthen your faith at this table. Because think about it. When you come to the communion table, what you're doing is recognizing your own need. God, I'm a, I'm a sinner. God, I'm, I've got no hope apart from you. God, what I deserve is, is judgment. And yet you're calling me to come because you love me. You gave your son. And so I can come and I can repent of my sin. See, when I come to the table, I'm just not saying I'm a sinner, but I'm saying, God, I want you to change me. I want to turn away from this sin and put my hope in Jesus because it's only by the sacrifice of the animal that Moses and the leaders of Israel could go up on the mountain. It's only by the sacrifice, by the blood of the lamb that the angel of death passed over their houses. It's only by the blood of Jesus that you and I can come and share God's meal in God's presence. But it also tells me how much God loves me, that the God so loved 
the world. He so loved me that he gave his only son. And that reminds me, I can trust this God. I can trust this God today, but I can also trust him tomorrow. I can trust him with my spiritual life, but I can also trust him with my career and my family and my health and my money and my time and everything. God, I want to follow you. Jesus meets us here at this table. It's more than can be put into words or it's more than can be written on a page. He shows up here. And he invites you to come. Maybe some of you are suspicious like me. You're like, well, maybe we're overplaying it a little bit. I mean, I barely remember the last time I took communion and I don't remember it being anything that special. Was it really as big a deal as you're making it sound? A couple decades ago, there was a, a, a discussion in the newspaper. It kind of turned into letters to the editor written back and forth over a few weeks. And it kind of started because somebody said, my pastor thinks his sermons are more important than I think they are. So I don't even remember my pastor's sermon. So how can it be that big of a deal to my faith? And other people were writing in and saying, well, now that you think about it, I don't even know what my pastor preached on that last week. And finally, a guy who'd been married a long time, he's an old guy, he had wisdom. He'd been married a long time. He, 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 he wrote in and he said, you know, my, my wife with the course of our marriage has fixed a lot of meals and the truth is that I don't remember any of them, but I'm pretty sure if I hadn't eaten them, I wouldn't be alive today. Well, it's kind of similar with, with coming to worship. You might not remember last week's songs. You might not remember the last sermon. You might not remember the last time you took communion. But I'm pretty sure that, that if you didn't come, if you didn't sing, if you didn't hear the scriptures, if you didn't worship, if you didn't share at this table, your faith wouldn't be alive. This is where God meets us. Every day is not special. Every sermon isn't memorable. Every song doesn't touch your heart. Every communion experience isn't one you'll think about for the years to come. And yet this is where God strengthens your faith, just like he strengthens your body through food. So today we're going to give a shot at returning to some of the ways that we used to take communion. So I realize some of you have never experienced that and others have probably forgotten what it was like. It's been so long. So let me remind you. Uh, in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You don't need to come at a special time or it's not dismissed by Rose. Just come forward. It's chaotic. That's okay. You'll survive. And as you come down forward, you're going to see people down here at stools and just walk up to one of the stools. Take, and there's two ways to do it. You can take a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice. Just juice today, no wine. Training wheels today, training wheels. We, we dip it in the juice and eat it. They'll say something to you. You don't have to say anything, but they'll say something to you. And they go sit back down and keep singing. Others of you may not feel comfortable taking communion this way. That's fine. Uh, or maybe you have a gluten allergy. That's good. We got you covered. On the stool, you'll find the prepackaged communion. And you can serve yourself communion. Again, you don't need to say anything. Although the people serving will say a word of blessing over you. This table is for those who want to come and say, I'm a sinner. Christ is my only hope. If that doesn't describe you, that's fine. We're glad you're here. Don't feel any pressure to come forward. Just sit, think, pray, sing. But the whole time here, we'll be singing and worshiping the God who rescued us. Every time we take communion, we remember those in our church and in our community with physical and financial needs. So as you leave today, there are offering towers marked mercy and the money in those towers goes only to meet those kind of physical and financial needs.
On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he took some wine and he poured it into a cup. And he said, this is my blood. It's been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. While those who are coming to serve communion come forward, let's let the rest of us pray for a moment. Jesus, thank you that you gave your life that we might come back into your presence. That you promise that you will satisfy us. You promise that you will meet our every need. And that this meal is a symbol of all that you have done for us. Father, I thank you that we can come into your presence by the blood of the lamb. As we come in faith, strengthen our faith that we might hold tightly to Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. People of God, come to the table of the Lord.